Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you today. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'd like for us to take a look into our Beauty of Grace series as we are moving closer and closer toward completing this series. It has been much longer than I had anticipated whenever we began it, but oftentimes that may be the case as God's Word is so rich and so revealing, and there is this beauty of grace. It's a very powerful thing, and so many times today it's cheapened, and it's treated as if it's a loose, common, perverted thing, or something that is just licentious also, just to be treated with disrespect or disregard. And that is so far from the truth as we have seen in this series. So I'd like for us to continue today. And today we're in lesson 67. And we're going to talk about the conduciveness of grace. After discussing how Christians are to be carriers of the grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and be fishing for people's souls by casting the net of grace, to bring in others to this wonderful relationship with our Lord. Let's explore a bit further by discussing today the conduciveness of grace. Conduciveness is speaking of something that is tending to bring about something or to cause something to happen. It's something that tends to promote or assist something else. It's also considered leading to a desirable result, something that will promote or lead you to a desired end, a desired result. So this connects with the last several lessons as we look a bit more into the carrying and casting of this grace that we have to share through the glorious gospel, the good news of Jesus. Not only does conduciveness speak of the act of the transmission itself, but also brings us to understand the carriers or couriers of it and the desired end result, which is to see other people saved, born again of the Spirit of God, and in this same love relationship with Jesus that he has granted every believer in Jesus Christ, every follower of the Lord, to be partaking of. I want to begin today by reading a couple of verses in Acts First, in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, it says this, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Peter is who it's speaking of here. Peter has just had the sermon on the day of Pentecost that's been recorded in the earlier verses here when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the disciples. And so Peter now, it says here, not only did he say those words, but we're told here in verse 40 that he used many other words, testifying and exhorting, pleading with them, imploring them, beseeching them, come and be saved from this perverse generation. God's judgment will eventually come to those who refuse to repent and will not receive Jesus Christ. And so Peter is begging them, come and receive Jesus today. Be saved from this perverse generation. And the same words are applicable to us today as well. 
And then in the very next chapter, we see Peter ministering now to an individual. This is a lame man, a beggar at the gate beautiful. And they went to the temple at the hour of prayer in this time period. And Peter sees this man, and this man is expecting to get some kind of money, alms, or something like that from Peter and John. They're they're together. And it says in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so he gave, through the power of the Holy Spirit working through him, he was able to bring healing to that individual in that moment. And he simply shared what he had. He simply shared what he had. He said, what I do have, I give you. I have Jesus. I have Jesus to share with you. I have the love of Jesus to share with you. I have the blessing that Jesus can bring to you. And I'll share that with you. You see, beloved friend, even today, even later in John's epistles, he writes about this, that what we're doing in casting the net, in sharing with others, is we're trying to create that conducive environment by simply sharing what we have. This is what Peter said, but what I do have, I give you. Share what we have in the hopes of helping others come to Jesus and be saved. We just need to give them Jesus. We're the ones called to live out our faith by sharing Jesus with all that we can through our lives, transmitting his life and his light to the world. I want us next to look at John chapter 1, and I want to begin reading in verse 12 for a few verses and then read a few other verses. In verse 12 through 14, it says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And then John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That was through verse 17. So we are transmitting the good news of Jesus Christ with our hope of the end result desired. And in doing this, we are helping others to receive Jesus and be able to be born again. But notice, grace and truth 
came through Jesus. These are teaching us that grace and truth are combined together. They're, they're both in Jesus Christ and have come through Jesus. It doesn't mean that God was not gracious in the Old Testament days before Jesus came. Let me speak some examples. Let's first of all read in Exodus chapter 34. I want to read verses 6 and 7. Moses has prayed and said, Lord, please show me your glory. I want to see you in your glory. And so God has answered him. And in doing so, it says this in verse 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God is proclaiming here his eternal name. He is declaring who he is. He is declaring his nature, his character, his essence. He is declaring his name. Never changes. He is one and the same. He is the one who was, who is, and who is to come, eternally the same. And so he is abundant in goodness and truth. He is merciful and gracious, always has been, always will be. He is the one who was, who is, and who is to come, eternally the same. And we have examples of that in the Old Testament, several many more than we can list here, but we'll just speak of a few here and mention them. The deliverance of Adam in Genesis chapter 3 is the first example because Adam, God could have said, I'm done with you. You screwed it all up. Forget you. Zap, and Adam could be no more, and God could have started all over again, but he didn't. He killed an animal and shed blood because there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. And then he gave Adam and Eve those as clothing to wear. And he sent them out of the garden to preserve the tree of life for all who can partake of it later because of what Jesus was going to do when he himself would become the sacrifice for mankind's sins. Then in Abraham and Isaac, in the offering of Isaac, the binding of Isaac that we read about in Genesis 22, God's grace is seen there because God provided the substitute. And that was all a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the exact picture of Golgotha, of what God is going to do himself, him being the father and his own son climbing on the altar we call the cross of Calvary or Golgotha. Then we see his graciousness to Jacob all through the later chapters of Genesis and to Joseph. We see God's grace exhibited powerfully in the deliverance from Egypt that we read about in Exodus and their times in the wilderness all the way through Deuteronomy. We see his grace in Joshua when he brought them into the promised land and gave them victory and an inheritance. We see God's grace in Ruth through the kinsman redeemer, pictured so beautifully in Boaz. We see God's grace 
poured out in the days of David and Solomon and the days of many of the kings, such as Hezekiah and Josiah. We see God's grace through the prophets as the prophets delivered the warning as God was reaching and trying to reach the people, trying so desperately to get them to turn from their sin so that they could be saved and rescued from these judgments that had to come because of their sinfulness and their refusal to repent. God has always been gracious. He is abundant in grace, mercy, and truth. But now God is coming in the flesh. That's what John is telling us here in John chapter 1. Now God is coming in the flesh, the Son of the living God coming to earth in the fullness of God's grace. See, it was beautifully pictured and foreshadowed and typified in the Old Testament. But now the reality of it has come in our presence. God sent his own Son with to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. There was a closeness there. There is actual evidence in the front of our eyes through Jesus' life and ministry and all the things that have been recorded. And it's even carried on by the examples in Acts and the epistles of the apostles and the early church. So God provides glimpses and knowledge of God's eternal grace even in the book of Revelation, by giving us what is ahead for the believer, for the Christian. What's ahead? Many years ago, the Lord led me to read the book of Revelation over just a few days. And I'll never forget when I first did that over just two or three days. I'll never forget what the Lord showed me. And you know, Revelation can be a scary book for many, but it's a book that has a blessing attached to it. I encourage you to read Revelation. But when I did it that time, what I saw was this. In Revelation, there are all kinds of things discussed, and it's worthy of study. And we've done Revelation studies here. I'm about to do another prophetic study, etc. But in the book of Revelation, it all boils down to one main thing, and that is this, the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name is either found there or it is not. And you choose which one of those is to occur. Your name can be placed and is written in the Lamb's Book of Life if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, if you will repent of your sins and receive Him as your Savior and your Lord, if you will call upon Him and be saved, your name is immediately written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If you refuse him, your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life and will not be unless you repent and receive him. And that's the key, because all of the book of Revelation simply boils down to this. It tells you what's going to happen to all those whose names are in the Book of Life and all those who are not. It gives you the exact destiny for each. And so God even in his graciousness, is telling us ahead of time, look, this is key, this is important. I'm trying to reach you with the knowledge of my grace and my truth. Jesus actually reveals God's grace in its fullness, in its reality, in its manifestation before our eyes, even right now, in tangible ways, throughout his ministry. 
by feeding 5,000 and 4,000, by healing the sick, by raising the dead, by cleansing the lepers, by opening blinded eyes, etc. All of the various things that Jesus did and taught. Yet notice, he did it with grace and truth. He also taught. They're always coupled together. Grace and truth are never separate. The grace of God never, ever, ever violates God's established truth. So let's begin discussing a little bit of this by looking at some scripture. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So grace and truth combined together. Grace of God is never in violation to God's established truth. It's never in opposition to that. We can see that also from the writings in the Psalms. Let's look at a few. Psalm 57 verse 3, which you could say is somewhat prophetic, messianic prophetic, because this is exactly what we just read in John chapter 1. In Psalm 57 verse 3, it says, He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. And he did. John 1 just told us that, that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Then in Psalm 85 verse 10, it says this, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. It's talking about that closeness, that joining of mercy and truth together. In Psalm 86, 15, it says this, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. In Psalm 89, verse 14, it says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. And in Psalm 98, verse 3, it says, He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So in the Old Testament, we even see mercy and truth or grace and truth together, interchangeably, connected together, is inseparable. Mercy can be interchanged with grace to some degree in the Old Testament Hebrew word that is used there. Grace suggests God's favor and mercy. Not getting what we deserve is what we typically can refer to as mercy, but getting what we do not deserve is grace. As a matter of fact, the first use of this word that is translated in these verses as mercy is chesed or chesed in the Hebrew. And the first use is found in Genesis chapter 19 in regard to the rescue of Lot. Lot got Lot into Sodom. 
He started looking that direction. He started looking toward Sodom. And then, before long, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. He moved closer and closer. And then, before long, he's in Sodom. And then, by the time we get to Genesis 19, he's not only in Sodom, but he's a major player in the marketplace or in the business part of Sodom because he's at the gate. So Lot is the one who got Lot into Sodom. But praise be to God, God's grace and mercy got Lot out. Lot got what he did not deserve in this rescue, just like you and I have gotten what we did not deserve through God's beautiful and amazing grace. This combination of grace and truth even carries into the New Testament all through Jesus' ministry and life. He combined grace and truth. For instance, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he told her the truth, but also exhibited great grace. The adulterous woman in John chapter 8, he told her the truth, but also gave her great grace and mercy. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he extended grace to him, but he also told him the truth. You must be born again. That's the same message that Jesus still gives today. That message to Nicodemus is the same for you and I. It's the same for every person here. That's the truth of the matter. You must be born again. Your name must be in the Lamb's book of life or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. You will not be with Jesus. You will suffer eternal torment. That's the truth, and we must mix the grace of God with that truth. They're always together, never separated. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18 shows us how this carries forward even through the days of the apostles and their desires for the church. As a matter of fact, let's begin the reading in verse 17 and read verse 17 and 18, 2 Peter chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Notice what he says here, grow in the grace and knowledge, the grace and knowledge, the grace and truth. That truth, that knowledge is found in God's word. Why this great emphasis on the combination of grace and truth? I believe Jesus may give us the answer in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30, it says this, As he, meaning Jesus, spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Here, grace and truth combined. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. Why? Because the truth is in the word of God. The word of God gives us the truth. If we plant ourselves in the word, 
and are growing and thriving in it and in God's great grace. We are his disciples, and the truth that we learn makes us free. We're able to live lives of victory, and we're able to be confident that soon our Lord will come for us, and we will be with him, because our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Matter of fact, Jesus said that's your reason to rejoice. In Luke chapter 10, I believe, it says, Don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you, but you rejoice because your name is written in that very, very, very important book, that Lamb's Book of Life, because you believed in Jesus Christ and have been born again of the Spirit of God. It's the end result that God desires that we all come to be Jesus' disciples in his family, in a loving relationship with him, and filling his house. Notice this in Luke chapter 14. Beginning in verse 15, it says this, Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he, meaning Jesus, said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there still is room. And still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. They had other loves. They had other concerns. They had things that they thought were more important. So they're not going to get to enjoy it. But everyone who will come will be able to enjoy this beautiful relationship with the Lord and the end result of that with him in heaven. This is God's desired end result, proven even again by Peter when he spoke about it in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, as we read earlier, and in 2 Peter chapter 3, 9, where he says that God is not willing for any to perish. People will because they choose to reject him, but that's not his choice, his desire, his will is that they be saved, that all will come to repentance and know him. So we work to tell all we can and to help them grow as Jesus' disciples by simply transmitting to them what God has done for us, simply telling them what we know of him by speaking the truth in love. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't cheapen it. It is powerful in and of itself, and it is in total concert with God's truth and his word. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, we're told to speak the truth in love. That means that we should have a sincere, loving heart 
to help them and to see them saved, to see good things for them when we speak to them. When we combine the grace offered to them with the truth about them and why they need Jesus in a sincerely loving spirit, it carries this conduciveness of grace accompanying the message that we bring to foster the environment for people to receive the truth and be saved. Paul is a great example for us, as many of the other apostles were as well, but Paul specifically expresses it in a couple of places in the scriptures. The first one we want to look at is in Philippians chapter 2, and I'd like to read verse 13 through 17. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul is expressing here his willingness and joy even to be what he called a drink offering. What does that mean? In the days of the temple service, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there was a water and wine libation. What would happen is the water or the wine would be poured with the sacrifices on the altar of burnt offering every day. It was a special part of that offering to the Lord in obedience to his commands in the Torah. Paul, in essence here, is expressing his willingness to even die if his sacrifice through death would mean salvation and Christian growth to the disciples that he would leave behind to others because they were considered by him to be his joy and crown or his reward. In other words, Paul is saying he would pour out his life, he would spend his life on them and even be willing to die for the cause of Jesus Christ if it meant that through his sacrifice they would come to know Jesus and be born again. Paul meant this, and we know that he meant it in the way he lived his life, for one thing, all that he was willing to endure and suffer. But he also expresses it again in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This, he writes to young Timothy, is his last letter, his last epistle that we know of from him. He's writing to Timothy, who he considers to be a son in his faith. And he's expressing this again shortly before he knew he would die for Jesus' name. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, it says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his 
appearing. May God raise us up today to be conducive to grace and its desired end result in the lives of our families, our friends, our neighbors, and others, even to the point of being willing to be the drink offering, offering ourselves for Jesus' name. Let's let the agent of grace work in us, the Holy Spirit of God, work in us this great conduciveness to love people enough to tell them the truth about themselves and the beauty of God's grace available to them. So we would speak the truth in love to share this good news with the world. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of our Beauty of Grace series. God bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen.